You're listening to the Business of Environment podcast with Mark Roman. Welcome, everyone, to the Business of Environment podcast, where we explore insights on the intersection of business, the environment, and regulation. I'm your host, Mark Roman. I've been looking forward to today's podcast because joining us is Rich Rivkin, president of Enviro Disposal Group. Since 1991, Rich has managed well over 3,000 projects involving the transportation and disposal of of both hazardous and non-hazardous contaminated soils, dredged sediments, and, and other environmentally regulated materials. Rich's company provides these services across our entire country, and he specializes in the beneficial reuse and recycling of contaminated soils and historic fill. Uh, Rich's expertise uh, involves a lot of areas, but the one of the biggest interest to me is is his mission to identify the best available options for each project, where Rich really looks at uh, all solutions, whether simple or complex, uh, and sometimes he utilizes multiple disposal facilities in order to to get the best uh, uh, price for his clients, all at the same time uh, assuring full regulatory compliance which is extremely important. Rich is well-known in the environmental industry, and and you'll soon find out that he's very passionate about his work. If you ask any of his longtime loyal clients how best to describe Rich, well, some typical feedback you get is he's, you know, Rich is our go-to guy for disposal. There's no one else we consider uh, to call other than Rich. Uh, He provides valuable feedback. He's with cost-effective solutions and low-risk alternatives. And he provides this all in a very quick uh, time frame. And uh, Rich's clients all, all say that it's quite evident that, uh, that he truly cares about what he does and he absolutely loves his work. And you know what? You can't ask for much more than that in the environmental services field. Welcome, Rich, to the Business of Environment podcast. Thanks very much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Rich, beyond the brief bio, can you let everybody know a little bit more about your background and, and, and what the path was that, that took you down into this road of environmental services? Sure thing. You, you, you bet, Mark. Um, I guess uh, ever since I was a kid, uh, I always had uh, a passion for uh, science and technology and uh, environment uh, as well. And uh, my early career uh, found me as a, an engineering and technical services recruiter uh, for a, a firm that uh, assigned uh, engineers and various technical personnel to uh, projects around the country, typically for six months to a year. And uh, that uh, business of mine was particularly focused on the uh, power plant engineering and design world, uh, both uh, fossil fuels and uh, nuclear power plants. And in fact, uh, in the 80s, I had uh, traveled around the country, I think 20 or 21 uh, nuclear power plants uh, from uh, coast to coast. And uh, during my travels, uh, I had uh, become aware during the late 80s, I think it was, that uh, asbestos abatement was something where the demand uh, was expected to uh, pick up quite briskly uh, based on uh, new regulations. And uh, I pivoted uh, into that business uh, in the late 80s and uh, had some very good years until uh, we had experienced some uh, diminishing returns in the market, uh, at which point uh, I had uh, some existing contacts in the environmental consulting world. And uh, through those contacts, uh, I had uh, 
I started uh, for a company that uh, was involved with environmental consulting. And uh, from there, uh, a couple of years later, I had recognized that uh, regulations uh, were kicking in uh, for contaminated soil disposal, something that had not been uh, previously regulated, uh, started uh, to be regulated, uh, I believe it was 1990. Uh, so by 1991, I had uh, gotten into the uh, contaminated soil transportation and disposal business, and uh, it, it's been uh, quite a ride ever since. Uh, I, I remember uh, back in the old days, uh, speaking with my colleagues at the time, telling them uh, that I, I thought that there would be about maybe a seven-year uh, duration uh, for contaminated for the contaminated soil market, after which we might start uh, to experience diminishing returns, since so much of our business back then was uh, driven by uh, leaking tanks, leaking petroleum tanks, et cetera. Yeah. And once they were replaced with uh, fiberglass double-wall tanks, th those tanks would, would uh, typically not uh, leak for the rest of our lives. So I'd, I'm happy to say that I was wrong about my prognostication. And here, going into my 29th year in the business, uh, we've never been busier. I mean, uh, taking COVID into consideration, it, it has uh, impacted the business this particular year. But the last few years have been fantastic for us. And e even this year, uh, uh, the, the last quarter is shaping up uh, rather nicely. So, so business is still healthy. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Tell us a little bit about more about your company, Enviro Disposal Group, and, and, and when did you get that started? Sure. Uh, I started the company, uh, it'll be 10 years come February. Our main mission is to identify the most cost-effective solution for our clients' projects while assuring full compliance uh, to all applicable uh, laws and regulations. And what I've said through the years is that uh, for any individual contaminated soil project, there's always one single best case scenario for the solution, which is both compliant and most cost effective. I'm uh, familiar with the acceptance criteria at all 30, approximately 30 of the disposal, recycling, beneficial reuse facilities that are accessible to us uh, in this uh, particular market actually have a, a comprehensive knowledge of, of the acceptance criteria. So uh, in my day-to-day -day travels, as I'm uh, reviewing uh, analytical reports, uh, I'm going through page by page and I'm making mental notes as, as I'm reading the, the various uh, detection levels of the contaminants and, and uh, just so, sort of keeping a running tally as, as to which facilities are permitted to accept uh, that particular soil uh, based on the analytical results. Excellent. You've been involved in the in the disposal field, like you said, or the environmental field itself, going on thirty years. And and what what have been some of the biggest challenges and, and changes that you've encountered over over that time frame? I mean, we're we're still in in COVID nine you know nineteen the pandemic. Yet you know that's a challenge to the whole world essentially. But what, what challenges and, and changes have you uh, been affected by over sure. over this extensive time frame? Challenges, I, I would say that there were a, a couple of time periods where business had slowed down uh, as the economy had slowed down. I could think back to maybe 2009, 2010, uh, real estate activity, construction activity uh, was not as brisk as it is uh, today. And uh, that, that was a more challenging time. Since those times, I, I would say changes 
have been uh, not so much uh, challenging, but even potentially uh, translating into an opportunity for us uh, uh, in the business. For example, uh, uh, regulatory changes that might uh, redefine uh, soil classifications. For example, uh, this past January, the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection had uh, changed the definition of what qualifies as Pennsylvania clean fill uh, from an analytical standpoint. Uh, they had uh, tightened up uh, uh, those uh, guidelines and uh, what used to qualify as Pennsylvania clean fill no longer does. That, that was a pretty big change uh, in, in the industry, which, which served to divert soils that might have gone to one or a couple of different facilities at one point, which now have to go to a, a, a whole different category of, of uh, permitted facilities. Uh, other changes have been along the lines of, uh, let's say, uh, some facilities have received uh, modifications to their permits where uh, for example, uh, they might uh, be granted uh, expanded limits uh, uh, chemically, where, for example, uh, uh, in the previous year, th their acceptance limit uh, for total lead uh, detected in soil may be at, at, at one particular level, and the, the following year it, it could have been raised. We've also had situations where uh, regulatory changes had caused the limits to uh, be decreased. Uh, one example for that is uh, benzoapyrene, a, a PAH compound, uh, which the New Jersey DEP has been uh, changing the limits on. I, I could think of, of three particular limits uh, that have uh, applied uh, uh, through the years, and uh, that has also uh, changed uh, classification uh, for uh, for New Jersey for what qualifies as, as for the New Jersey residential category. Uh, as another example. Uh, otherwise, uh, changes typically are, are uh, relatively infrequent uh, in our business that I've uh, observed uh, through the decades, at least as they relate to contaminated soil transportation and disposal. Okay. Well, what, one relatively recent um, issue that, that has come to the forefront in, in environmental is, is, is the term historic fill. Sure. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit of about, you know, what exactly is considered to be historic fill? Uh, you know, our listeners need to understand that, you know, historic fill can be out, can be found on their property, even though they may never have had any, you know, evidence of spills or releases on their property. Uh, yes, very true. Uh, so uh, technically, uh, historic fill is defined as a, a non-indigenous material that includes soil uh, and as well as uh, construction and demolition debris, uh, dredge spoils, uh, incinerator residue, fly ash, and uh, potentially uh, non-hazardous solid waste. Um, I've also come across uh, uh, numerous uh, projects involving historic fill where there may not have been uh, those uh, debris components that I mentioned, but where they, there may be uh, contamination from unknown sources, let's say from non-specific sources, where, where the sources of release weren't uh, known per se. But the one example uh, that we come across uh, quite frequently is uh, uh, historic fill in the New York City area, five boroughs, or even the North Jersey area, where some of these properties are uh, located along uh, well-traveled thoroughfares, where, for example, you have uh, vehicle exhaust uh, and, and emissions that, that uh, have been uh, spewing through the years and decades, and ultimately some of that will actually settle on the soil uh, incrementally through the years, 
you can have uh, some uh, buildup of uh, uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbon compounds, PAHs, uh, as well as uh, some metals that can be detected in historic fill. Uh, and as far as the, uh, the disposal uh, options for historic fill, typically uh, you've got recycling facilities uh, that can uh, take this material as well as uh, beneficial reuse facilities uh, that can take the historic fill soils that meet the acceptance criteria. And of course, landfills can take it as well, but uh, uh, that tends to be a, a more uh, costly uh, option. Yeah, and, and you know, speaking of landfilling, you know, we often hear uh, when, when, as a consultant, when we're discussing disposal options or remedial uh, options for impacted soil at a client's property, many times when we we talk about disposal, our clients say, "Well, that, you know, that's not really a green option for us uh, for for remediation uh, soil disposal," but that's that's not really true. I mean, you you've you keyed on a, a couple of key terms here, recycling and beneficial reuse of, 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 uh, of, of, for soil disposal. Can you elaborate a little bit more on soil disposal options? In uh, sure thing, Mark. And beneficial reuse? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of uh, non-hazardous, non-recreate contaminated soil, typically we do have those three categories. Uh, landfilling, uh, which is considered, it, it's actually subtitle D permitted landfills. Uh, uh, all the landfills now are, are, are carrying that subtitle D permit. They tend to be the, the most costly of the three categories. Then you've got the permitted soil recycling facilities, which will actually treat the non has soil using various methodologies prior to uh, reusing the soil. And, and those uh, methods uh, typically are, are uh, thermal desorption. Uh, which involves uh, uh, low-temperature uh, desorption uh, using a, a rotary kiln, which volatilizes uh, the organic uh, contaminants, uh, and it, uh, it renders it to a, a non-regulated uh, targeted level. Uh, and then you've got um, the uh, bioremediation, like off-site bioremediation, uh, is something that, that's uh, done uh, in New Jersey, actually at the Clean Earth Carteret facility, uh, and they accept soils uh, and uh, put them in uh, vessels that uh, uh, contain the microbes and nutrients, and then the bioremediation process will uh, remediate that material and, and remove the organic contaminants over a period of time uh, before the material is beneficially reused. Then a, a third uh, recycling uh, method is uh, asphalt batching, uh, which... Uh, in, which would uh, involve uh, putting the soil into a pug mill and then adding a, an asphalt cement to effectively uh, encapsulate the soil uh, and render the contaminants non-leachable. It doesn't treat the, the contaminants themselves, doesn't remove them, but does render them uh, uh, non-leachable, and then uh, that material can be uh, benefic beneficially reused as uh, uh, sub-base material, typically uh, for uh, uh, road paving. And then uh, the, uh, the other category uh, for disposal these days is beneficial reuse, uh, which entails uh, reusing soils uh, without uh, uh, treatment first. Uh, and that situation uh, can be found uh, at various brownfield sites in New Jersey, which, for example, uh, are permitted by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, uh, where they would be uh, permitted to receive uh, soils, including historic fills often, uh, that meet their acceptance criteria. 
And the acceptance criteria is usually based upon the existing levels of contamination at those brownfield sites. Uh, so the state will allow some lower level contaminated material uh, to be used essentially to bring these properties, these brownfield properties, up to grade so then they can uh, then be uh, uh, redeveloped in, in some uh, useful fashion. It, in terms of uh, cost, uh, the beneficial reuse is the lowest cost, and then uh, recycling is the next lowest cost, and subtitled landfilling is typically uh, uh, the most costly. And uh, where, these, where these processes are, are conducted these days uh, is in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. You have a handful of facilities that, that are uh, permitted for recycling in New Jersey, and a couple, just a few in Pennsylvania, uh, but also we have, uh, I would say, the better part of maybe 10 to 12 uh, beneficial reuse uh, sites uh, between New Jersey and Pennsylvania, uh, to w which we access on a regular basis uh, for our client projects here in the Metro New York, uh, New Jersey region. Okay. You know, speaking of projects, like I said earlier on in your intro, I, I find your, your mission statement really fascinating, uh, looking at all the best avail available options, but not necessarily bringing all of the waste to one facility. You know, you're targeting mul multiple disposal facilities to optimize these costs and uh, savings. And while at the same time, assuring f full regulatory compliance for your clients. Can you provide a couple of examples of, of where you did that for your clients? Yeah, sure. I mean, typically, the, the larger the volume of soil to remove at, at any given site, the greater the chance that a complex solution would be warranted in order to incorporate the greatest cost savings. Uh, and, and this does uh, often entail targeting multiple disposal facilities uh, for soils that carry uh, different uh, waste classifications. Uh, I can recall uh, one uh, a pretty large project in particular that required uh, targeting five different facilities in order to uh, minimize the, the T&D costs. I, I think it was close to about 100,000 tons. And uh, the, uh, uh, the, the property had included, uh, uh, I think, five categories where, where we had to uh, find a facility to uh, conduct treatment and disposal of, of hazardous lead soil, characteristically hazardous for lead. Also treatment and disposal of listed hazardous chlorinated solvent impacted soil. Uh, and we found the most cost-effective uh, facility for that in Canada. Uh, also, it, that project had entailed recycling of soils that had contained uh, uh, moderate to high levels of uh, petroleum compounds. We were able to recycle that, that in New Jersey. Uh, and also, uh, uh, it had entailed a beneficial reuse uh, of uh, some of the historic fill soils at the site. Some of those uh, materials had, had contained lower levels of contaminants, uh, and we had actually uh, targeted two different uh, beneficial reuse facilities uh, based on some of the, the geotech variables uh, that uh, we had detected uh, uh, relating to the material. So that, that, that's sort of a, a typical situation uh, that might involve a complex solution uh, where we would uh, target a, a number of facilities. That project in particular had something for, uh, for, for, uh, for most of the categories, uh, which is why <laughs> I wanted to mention that. But typically, uh, we may have uh, job sites who will have you know, five, 10,000 tons of soil, and uh, let's say the, the majority, majority of it uh, may qualify for beneficial reuse uh, in Pennsylvania, which tends to be a very cost-effective option. But the sections that uh, had exceeded the acceptance criteria 
for reuse in Pennsylvania. Portions of that, again, may have gone uh, for recycling in New Jersey. And uh, in fact, uh, it's not unusual that we'll have uh, some larger projects for example, uh, some uh, sections or some sampled grids that may exceed the acceptance criteria uh, of the recycling facility or the reuse facility for total lead. That, that, that's a, 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 a culprit uh, pretty often that we find. And in that situation, uh, we would target a, a subtitle permitted landfill. So again, it, it's, it's a matter of uh, with the greatest uh, possible precision to, to carve out uh, the various uh, delineated uh, categories and then find the uh, lowest cost and compliant uh, facility for that particular uh, category. So the key to a lot of this is is, is the characterization of the wastes, uh, it sounds like. And and I, I know a, a lot of our clients just struggle with that. Is, is that a, a, you know, if, if a, a company retains Rich Rivkin, do you handle you know, everything from soup to nuts, if you will, characterization all the way through the uh, recommendation for disposal? So, yes. Yeah, so we, we can guide that uh, the characterization. Uh, it's something that we don't self-perform, and, and we would typically sub that out, uh, you know, to one of the labs and, and have uh, right. a technician uh, come on site and handle the lab work. Once the lab report is issued, we take it from there. So I'm able to uh, review the lab report in detail, uh, interpret that data, and, and, uh, and make some determination as to uh, what would be uh, the, the most suitable, basically the most cost-effective and compliant uh, disposal facility option uh, for that material uh, with the mission of, of uh, cost minimization. Okay. The other uh, side of your mission statement where, you know, ins- ins- ensuring full regulatory compliance is, is so important because when it comes to waste disposal, there's always that underlying concerns regarding risks and liabilities. You know, nobody wants to be the next PRP at the next Superfund case. Sure. So, and, and what we find with, with a lot of companies is, is many companies make the mistake of believing, hey, once their waste is, leaves their facility, they don't need to worry about it anymore. You know, well, and that's not true, as, as you and I uh, know, especially when it comes to hazardous wastes under, under res- the uh, Resource Conservation and Recovery Act or RECRA, the, the cradle to grave regulation, where you're responsible for your waste from generation through accumulation and storage, transportation, and all the way through disposal. Um, do you have any suggestions for our listeners on on how they can go about reducing such liabilities and exposures? When it sure, comes you, you to bet. That, that, I've I've observed that that liability exposure has actually decreased in general through the years. That, you know, since 1991, when I came into the business, you know, the the phrase PRP, potentially responsible parties, uh, was uh, thrown around quite a lot. Since those days, as a result of all the problems uh, with PRP liability. Um, that issue has been addressed uh, more thoroughly. So, for example, uh, landfills, uh, subtitled permitted landfills, uh, will typically take ownership of the soil once they've approved it and received it, and will actually provide indemnification for the generator, for the property owner, uh, moving forward uh, ad infinitum. So uh, that's something that did not exist prior to uh, the advent of the subtitle D uh, uh, landfill uh, uh, permitting. Uh, in addition to that, 
Um, recycling also tends to be more protective of uh, the generator's liability as compared to some other disposal uh, options, especially uh, the thermal desorption uh, recycling option, which actually does destroy the contaminants before the soil is, is then uh, reused. And by the way, w- once the soil is recycled and treated at the non-HAS facilities, it will typically be reused as daily cover material at nearby landfills. Uh, whereas the, the landfills uh, require, uh, you know, truckloads of soil every day, essentially to, to cover the layer of garbage uh, for a dust suppression, for odor suppression. So they typically have uh, long-term arrangements uh, in place with the various recycling facilities, which is beneficial for both the local county landfills that use the soil as cover, as well as the recycling facilities that gener- generate the soil, uh, you know, through their, uh, through their uh, processing method. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, uh, the generator liability is something that uh, we don't hear as much about these days in terms of uh, litigation as we had uh, in, in the 1990s. And, and I think that uh, as the industry has matured, I, I think uh, awareness and, and knowledge has also increased uh, on the part of uh, uh, the property owners as well as the consultants that guide them. Uh, but uh, we, we do find that, that uh, the liability uh, associated with contaminated soil seems to be less of a concern these days than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, we're, what we're seeing a lot of uh, exposure for clients is, is the, the disposal facility or company that they're using to take care of their uh, um, um, waste materials, you know, um, a lot of times our, uh, we find companies uh, looking at this solely on price. But what we always recommend that uh, before retaining a company is they do a little bit of homework on them. You know, make sure they're financially strong, run a DMB report on them, make sure they have a good compliance history, and make sure they've been a- around a while, like yourself. You know, uh, you've, been, you've been in here, you know, in the business for three decades. You don't want to hire a fly by night company to handle your waste needs because, you know, no matter how attractive that price is, uh, you want somebody that, that knows what they're doing and they, and they know uh, all of the viable and incompliant options you have in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. And along those lines, uh, uh, you know, where that had been an issue with some nefarious players in the past, over the past uh, year or two in the state of New Jersey, uh, they have instated the uh, A901 uh, permitting, uh, which has been expanded to not just the transporters, but basically anybody that's uh, involved with uh, even arranging for contaminated soil uh, transportation disposal. So companies like, like us are, are also uh, required to be A901 permitted, and to go through that process, uh, there, there's pretty uh, comprehensive vetting uh, in order to, to receive that permitting. Uh, so if, if uh, you're dealing with a, a company that, that's received that uh, level of certification, uh, it, it's usually uh, it, it's something you can feel comfortable with uh, to move forward with. Uh, all right, great. Sound advice. Um, we all have demanding schedules and, 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 and limited time on our hands. And, and uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges I hear from, from many involved in the environmental services field, whether a, a, a client or, or a service provider, is staying in tune with re- re- environmental regulations. You know, especially with disposal regulations, you probably have to spend, you know, a good chunk of time keeping up with regulatory tra- changes. And like to ask is how, how do you do that and and what make 
what, what do you believe makes some successful in navigating that regulatory environment while others struggle with it? Sure. I, I think, well, I, I have to, uh, you know, keep my eye on the various websites, New, New York DEC, New Jersey DEP, Pennsylvania DEP, for any bulletins or, or change that, that might come down the pike. Uh, but I would say even from a more uh, practical standpoint, you know, I, I have uh, conversations with the various disposal facilities, reuse, recycling facilities, almost on a daily basis. And, and these are the guys that uh, are at the front lines and, and would be made aware of the regulatory changes uh, probably first. Uh, so typically, uh, I'll hear uh, of any news or bulletins, you know, through my contacts at the facilities, uh, sometimes even before I, I see it uh, posted at the uh, agent, state agency uh, uh, website. So it, it's sort of an ongoing uh, uh, back and forth on a day-to-day basis uh, in terms of communicating with the facilities to 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 stay uh, updated uh, with what's happening uh, uh, with, with the news of the day. Yeah, I I, I always uh, recommend our clients don't be afraid to pick up a phone and call somebody and talk. <laughs> you you tend to get a lot more information uh, and uh, out of just communicating the old-fashioned way, you know, uh, using words rather than letters on a, on a computer screen, spoken yeah, words, it, letters, you know, emails and stuff like that. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I find that, that the, the community of, of individuals that are active in, in this contaminated soil arena, especially in this region, it's somewhat insular. Like, we've all known each other for, for many years uh, and and there, there's a, an ease of communication. We all speak the same language. We, we all understand the same nuances, which are, are in some cases quite complex. And unless you've been in this business for at least a decade, you, you typically haven't had uh, a sufficient opportunity to go through the learning curve. Unless you've had, you know, at least five to ten years of, of conversations with people about contaminated soil between, you know, property owners and clients and contractors and consultants and regulators and facilities and laboratories, each of those conversations, you, you'll pick up knowledge, which is uh, essential. So, uh, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, after 29 years in the business, uh, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to contaminated soil uh, that I've seen. And that, that typically is true, but from time to time, we do have a new wrinkle that comes into play. And for example, we have the PFAS, uh, the perfluoroalkyl uh, family of compounds, the, the forever chemicals, PFOAS, PFAS, uh, which uh, I, I think will be uh, an up-and-coming uh, area of, of concern, one that we'll all be uh, learning more about uh, and, and that particular uh, topic is, uh, is a moving target uh, as of now because the regulators are still in discussions as to the permitting that's required by the disposal facilities uh, to safely uh, accept uh, these materials on a permanent basis. And I, I know that uh, there is a, a pilot project uh, that's taking place now in the state of New York uh, with one of the recycling facilities that's in the process of doing some experimental treatment with that uh, that PFOS category, which is something that uh, your listeners uh, have heard about over the last year or so and will be talking about uh, much more uh, over the next uh, years to come. And I have a feeling that this will be a, a real uh, point of uh, attention for us all uh, in the environmental consulting field. Yeah, and, you know, it's um, that's a great segue to plug 
this podcast because we're actually uh, working on a PFOS podcast right now, uh, uh, which is uh, forthcoming in the near future. So listeners, stay tuned for that. (laughs) Uh, Rich, what's your number one piece of advice for businesses dealing with potential environmental disposal challenges? Uh, Sure. Uh, To understand uh, soil waste classification, uh, which also requires, you know, some at least basic understanding of uh, of how to interpret the soil analytical data. Uh, but once there's some knowledge uh, in terms of, of classifying material, uh, it, it's uh, of paramount importance to know uh, what next step to take. And to give you a, a couple of uh, uh, examples of, of what some of those classifications are, at least, you know, here in the Metro New York, New Jersey market, you've got the uh, Pennsylvania clean fill, Pennsylvania regulated fill, New Jersey uh, residential uh, material. You've got ID27, which is New Jersey regulated material. You've got uh, some uh, New York classifications as well. Uh, But but those are the the main categories of of the non-hazardous categories. And uh, if we were to talk about uh, the recro-hazardous categories, that that may be a a topic for a a whole other uh, phone interview. Yeah, <laughs> not just one either. <laughs> right, yeah. um, okay, Rich. On a personal note, can you share with our audience an interest or hobby that uh, you enjoy, enjoy uh, doing? Sure, you, you bet. Uh, I, I'm uh, a hand percussionist. I, I play uh, conga drums and bongos and uh, djembe, African drums, and, and whatnot. Uh, I've uh, also uh, performed uh, various bands through the years. I, I've been uh, a band leader. I had led uh, a uh, jazz funk fusion uh, instrumental uh, project uh, for about eight years in the past. And uh, my other hobby is uh, music festival production. I'm actually uh, one of Long Island's uh, most uh, prominent uh, music festival producers. And since uh, 2001, I've uh, produced a total of uh, 46 music festivals at various uh, scenic park locations uh, located uh, throughout Long Island. And these days, my uh, flagship festivals, uh, at least in a, in a normal year, non-COVID year, uh, would include uh, Woodstock Revival, uh, which takes place uh, uh, every June, a two-day event at a, a big park in, uh, here in Long Island, and then Grateful Fest, uh, which takes place uh, every September. And uh, we've had, uh, oh boy, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people that have attended these festivals uh, since 2001. And they've uh, become sort of uh, part of the uh, uh, fabric of the Long Island music scene uh, uh, through the years. Uh, in addition to that, I've also uh, found my passion uh, as an event organizer, just to, as a hobby. Uh, I've organized uh, maybe about 300 uh, indoor events uh, over the past uh, 20 years or so. Uh, including uh, music-related, art-related, and uh, also uh, business networking, as, as I've been the organizer of a, a couple of uh, meetup groups. So, yeah, the, all these things keep me busy because uh, I'm a person uh, who uh, doesn't like to be bored. <laughs> well, you you don't have much free time with that that schedule in front of you. <laughs> I, but uh, although you know, with, with COVID, yeah, I, 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 I do have a little bit too much free time these days. I, I we like to, <laughs> of course, I'd, I'd like to be getting out and organizing more. But that said, I, I actually had uh, organized a concert series in my backyard uh, during the summer and, and fall. Actually, uh, last weekend was my fourth and uh, f- uh, final uh, concert uh, uh, of the uh, of the season. 
uh, who I have uh, about you know, 20 uh, distanced uh, friends in the audience, and then uh, we live stream uh, the events on Facebook and you know, get uh, lots of views that way. And that, that, that's kept me busy, uh, but uh, that, uh, that has ended uh, until next spring. So uh, I'm looking for some uh, cold weather activities to uh, keep me from being bored. There you go. Well, Rich, thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. And and if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, whether for your environmental disposal services or your musical festivals, how would they do that? You bet. You can email me, rich at soildisposal.com. You can also call me, 1-800-UST-SOIL. That's 800-878-7645. You can also check out the website, soildisposal.com. And uh, on the musical side of things, uh, you can uh, visit limusicfestivals.com. Limusicfestivals.com. And uh, speaking from experience, Long Island is a very great place to enjoy music. Uh, outdoors and in the sunshine. So we're looking forward to warmer weather also there for that. That's for sure. Me too. Well, thanks, Rich. Uh, and, and thank you, everyone, for listening to today's show. Until we share some time together again, stay safe and be well. The Business of Environment podcast is sponsored by Envision Environmental. Do you have environmental gorillas hiding in plain sight at your facility? Chances are you do, and you don't even know it. Discover how to assess your environmental, health, and safety risks and protect yourself from fines and liabilities before there's trouble. Download a free copy of our book, Overlooked, Hunting the Invisible Environmental Gorilla at EnvisionEnvironmental.com slash free book.